Hey everybody, welcome to TCP Talks with Jonathan Baker and Justin Broadley from The Cloud Pod. In this series, we're bringing you interviews with the best and brightest leaders and heroes from the tech and cloud industry. On today's show, we chat to Liz Rice, VP of Open Source Engineering with Alka Security. She's also the chair of the CNCF Technical Oversight Committee and AWS Container Hero. Well, Liz, thanks for joining us here on TCP Talks. Maybe you could uh, introduce yourself. Yeah, hi. So my name is Liz Rice. I am VP of Open Source Engineering at Aqua Security. And Aqua is a company that provides tools to help enterprises secure their cloud native deployments. So we have open source tools that my team build that complement that or get built into the the commercial products. And then I also have a a kind of side role of being the uh, chair of the Technical Oversight Committee at the CNCF. Awesome. Well, we're super happy to have you here on the show. And, uh, you know, it's been an interesting journey for Aqua. Originally very focused on containers. They've now bought Cloudsploit. Uh, They've gotten a lot more active in the open source uh, community, partially because of you, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, But what's kind of been the journey for Aquasec and where kind of have you seen the market change as you guys have adapted and, and met the needs? Yeah, it's interesting. And I've been with Aqua for, well, quite a bit over three years now. And I remember when I first joined containers were really new to a lot of people. Hardly anybody was running them in any kind of scale in production. Um, we were still in the very much in the midst of like orchestration wars. So there were you know three or four different choices for orchestrators and there was so much complexity. I think a lot of that, um, a lot of the choice has been made simpler for end user companies so they can adopt uh, you know, things like Kubernetes is pretty much the de facto orchestrator that most people are going to choose now. Um, we don't really have to explain what containers are anymore. We get a lot fewer people sort of thinking that it's anything to do with actually physical locks on a big box that goes on board a ship. You know, there's um, a lot more understanding of what we do. But then it's also become a much more, I guess, you know, there's there's more competition. There's more technology out there. You know, um, th- there's more tools that you can apply to secure cloud native. You know, there's more to know to become maybe bigger. And also, you know, the hype of the whole cloud native world is, you know, maybe three years ago we were thinking, wow, this is amazing. These container things, they're really popular. And now it's just huge. It's interesting. I think we're actually maybe a little bit in the trough of disillusionment a little bit on containers and, and Kubernetes in general and the complexities of those things. And so yeah, I think that's kind of the next big evolution of Kubernetes is really the simplification of it. I think we've we built a really powerful tool and that's really helpful. And for the companies that can afford to hire a, you know, a Kubernetes team to manage it and care and feed for it. That's really great. But I think we're, we're at this point where companies are realizing that's really expensive. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting <laughs> to see kind of the next year or two uh, how the community starts to really address that issue and really start simplifying a lot of the stuff. And do we continue to see things like COPS and other things that simplify the story? Or do we continue to see the vendors really take on the main role of this between VMware, Tanzu, and AWS, and GCP, and what they're all doing in their spaces? What do you think about that? I particularly think we'll see quite a lot of new developments in the world of like developer experience. So making it easier you know, for developers today, they kind of have to know an awful lot more about YAML and how their 
pods are going to get deployed, then they probably really need to, you know, they, they need to be focusing on business logic and functionality for their users. And, and um, I think we will see some abstractions that allow them to focus on on that and not have to be Kubernetes experts in order to write cloud native apps. And one of the reasons why I think that will happen is because we're seeing more and more uh, end users, quite often big companies who are joining the CNCF and they're coming to all the kind of community meetings and they're bringing their problems and their solutions with them. And quite a lot of those problems and solutions have been about, okay, how do we enable our developer organization to adopt this technology? What new challenges do containers bring in terms of security? I think a big part of it relates to automation. So the scale of workloads that you're running, you know, in in the olden days, you would be running a VM with some software on it and you could be, you know, you might have a, a, a set of those VMs, but they're basically managed by humans. And now we're talking about those VMs running thousands of different containers and the containers are, you know, being created and destroyed dynamically all the time. And uh, they're, you know, being redeployed much, much, much more frequently. And I think that speed at which the software changes means you can't be expecting to run kind of manual security processes uh, to keep up with that. You have to have automation. So a lot of the container security tooling and cloud native tooling is really about doing things like scanning automatically, putting automated gates in, putting automated alerts in, and just uh, enabling the operation at scale that we see with with containers and cloud native. Do you think it's too late to be scanning for security vulnerabilities by the time something's already in production? I think you have to keep scanning. I think you have to be scanning the whole lifetime of that image. You know, you, you, we want to be pushing scanning as far left in the life cycle so that you know developers can ship hopefully secure images, but. Even while it's running in production, you know, your container might, I think the average lifetime of a container is about three days, but, um, you know, the underlying code might last for a lot longer than that. And a new vulnerability could be discovered at any time. So you have to be scanning repeatedly in case new vulnerabilities have been uncovered. And they come up all the time. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a misnomer. I think people have that, you know, they're like, oh, containers are less secure. Uh, you know, and that's why you need to continually scan them in all these different places. I'm like, it's no different than an EC2 instance or a VM where you know we're running Qualys agents or running some other, you know, other things. So they they all rot in their own ways. The beauty of containers, though, in my mind, is that if you built the pipeline correctly, you built the automation right, you're actually able to drive better security and better compliance against those vulnerabilities and that rot that happens over time much much faster in a much more scalable way. So. In a lot, a lot of ways, it's a lot of the Web 2.0 thinking that we had, you know, back at the early days of the Velocif- you know, Velocity Conference, uh, where, you know, we're talking about, you know, Chef and Puppet and all these things. And now containers are this much simpler abstraction of all of that, <laughs> which is really great. So it's really nice to see that thinking and really thinking through how we approach container security in a different way, but also in the very similar to the way we used to do it in the past. And I think it's uh, um, when when you talk about the kind of rot and the general, the way that software tends to just sort of drift away from the original state that we intended our deployment to be in. And that can still happen in a containerized world, but a lot of the tooling steers us away from that. Uh, a lot of the um, 
you know, we're very much discouraging people now from SSHing into host machines. You know, you're supposed to be using your key control to, and, or your dashboards or whatever to be manipulating the pods that are running in your cluster. You're not supposed to be in there touching them directly. And, and the whole cattle, not pets uh, treatment of the underlying machines, you know, let's blow away machines from time to time and recreate them so that we know that they started from a good state in the first place. It's not really anything. Well, it, it is kind of something new, but it's it, we're dealing with the same software, but we're able to kind of keep it in that, you know, stop it from drifting because we're using these processes and the automation to keep recreating the state that we want. Yeah, it's, it's interesting uh, because containers is just one part of that whole ecosystem. And, you know, with your acquisition of CloudSploit uh, last year, you guys are now brought into the cloud and security posture management space. Um, how do you see those two pieces kind of coming together and interacting with each other in a way that's really interesting? Yeah, it, it feels to me like a very natural progression. And we started with containers um, pretty quickly. We were also looking at uh, serverless, you know, so sort of, um, securing your Lambda and similar functions. Um, increasingly, people were saying, but what about the host? How can we make sure the host is secure? Um, so we were kind of moving down the the stack if you like that direction and once you're looking at the configuration of the host and the software that's running on the host you may as well also be looking at the configuration of that host within its cloud um you know within the, the settings that the cloud provider gives you so cloudsploit was a very kind of complementary uh you know that they're, they're coming from that um the configuration of your your cloud settings, and that just sort of meshes really naturally with what we've been doing on the kind of host side, um, including things that my team had been doing with things like KubeBench for checking your um, Kubernetes settings were according to best practice. So it, it, it meshes together really nicely in that whole kind of um, securing everything in the stack. As the VP of open source technology, what, what is it about the open source solutions that, that's of value to Aqua? They could be closed source about everything. So what is it that open source brings to, to them as um, as a benefit? So if we think about the, the cloud-native world, so much of the technology that we're working with is in it, – it's open source. You know, we're – Kubernetes and Docker, you know, Moby Project anyway um, – all of those kind of surrounding projects like Prometheus and GRPC and, you know, the dozens of others that are in the CNCF and others that are outside the CNCF as well. So much of this technology is open source. And so we know that our enterprise customers are using open source software and they're quite often participating in the community discussions that go along with that. I mean, Cloud Native is, I think, I think one of the really special things about Cloud Native is how engage the community is and how you can just go out and find the answers to your questions by talking to people um so as a business we have to be there we have to be where the discussions are and having open source tools and solutions that are genuinely useful gives us a a, a good way of participating in that community and you know for Every you know thousand people that use one of our open source tools, some proportion of them, they might be working for an enterprise that then turns out to also have enterprise needs that you know they're familiar with Aqua, that maybe they know who we are, and uh, you know we we have a connection with them already. So that was really why we why we wanted to move in that direction, and it's been 
super successful it also helps us kind of explore technology ideas so um we just this week or last week rather launched a a new project called starboard and the idea of starboard is to make security information available across the kubernetes api very sort of native way and you know it i i think it's a really great idea I couldn't tell you how we could sort of monetize that idea today, but I do think it has value. So we can, as an open source project, get people trying it out. They can, um, you know, give us feedback on it. We can evolve it into something useful. But ultimately, it joins into both open source and commercial security tools. So there will be a bridge between that project and our commercial products, potentially other people's commercial projects as well. But uh, you know, it will give people a way of if they have projects that can't be solved with open source tools, again, they know who we are. And that's that's a good thing. Yeah. So maybe you can expand a little bit about Starboard and kind of what it's doing in the Kubernetes space. Uh, you know, people are familiar with some of your other tools like Trivi and Kubehunter mm-hmm. and some of those. Uh, how does this particularly apply to those? And, and what are we really getting out of this solution? Why should I be super excited to sell some of my Kubernetes cluster today? Mm, so Trivi would be a great example. You can run Trivi. And point trivia at a container image. Um, we can actually now support pointing it at um, GitHub repos as well. Um, so you, you point it at the thing that you want it to scan and it will tell you whether there are vulnerabilities. What Starboard's doing is bringing that information into the Kubernetes world. So uh, one of the subcommands that we have in Starboard is find vulnerabilities. And what that does is run a job to... Uh, scan you find vulnerabilities in a particular deployment uh, it would or job or what have you um, under the cover starboard will look up what's the images that are used in that deployment runs trivia over those images and then presents the information back to you as kubernetes custom resources so then you can query over the api the crds are labeled up with uh, information about like the name of the deployment and the uh, the namespace and what have you, so that we can match up these are the vulnerabilities that apply to this, I don't know, instance of Nginx running in your default namespace or what have you. And then you can query them over the API. And we have a nice Octant plugin. If you've seen Octant, it's a really nice dashboard for Kubernetes, pluggable, which is fantastic for being able to extend it with things like here are your vulnerabilities, here are the vulnerabilities right next to or displayed as part of the information about the workload that they apply to. That was a very long-winded explanation of saying <laughs> you can run Trivi through Starboard and your results are right there next to the workload you're interested in. That's really great because I, I, one of the challenges I have with a lot of security tools is that they they become their own isolated pillars where the data is there. It's all really great. Security team's aware of it, but you know the dev team doesn't have access to it or the ops team doesn't have access to it. So being able to unify those dashboards and being able to show that security vulnerability next to monitoring data versus the Kubernetes runtime, I think that's really great. So I, I, I'm all about you know <laughs> democratizing IT and all these different pillars and saying you know that data should be just as important to the engineering team as it is to the security team. So I, I'm super excited about this. It's really great. One of the um, design partners, I'll say, one of our, our customers that we kind of ran the early ideas past, and they were super excited about it because exactly what you're saying, they wanted to get that security information, give it 
or make it accessible to the developers, but they didn't want to give them access to the security tools. And they were basically saying, I just want to use Kubernetes RBAC to limit who has access to that security information. So if you can put that in the namespace and I can give them information to that, make it accessible over that API that they're already using, great. I don't have to worry about exposing a whole new tool to them and whatever other concerns I might have about about doing that. I know that a lot of people are still learning a lot about security and you've written a fantastic book on container security uh, you know, recently with O'Reilly. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about you know, your, the book and kind of what you'll learn from the book and what, why people should go out and buy it today. Yeah, so um, I guess for quite a few years now I've been doing talks fairly frequently, conference talks and um, you know, writing blogs and what have you about containers and security. And I eventually wanted to kind of take that material and just dive a little bit more in depth. I very much didn't want to do just like a, here is a guide to the actions you need to take to secure your containers. I want to explain why you have to take those actions. I want to give people the reasoning, the understanding of what's happening when you run a container, what's actually inside that container image, what when you run these security tools, what's really happening so that people can understand whether or not that security is necessary for them. Um, there's been loads of cases over you know, the, the last few years where uh, people have exposed their deployment in some way just through not really understanding what they're doing, you know, exposing the Kubernetes dashboard to the internet or running containers as root without realising that that's what they're doing. But, and if I can use the book to explain what's really happening when you're using the sort of underlying technology, hopefully that gives people a mental model for the security that they need to apply in their particular application. It is about security, but it's also about the underlying technology and how that influences what is or isn't secure when you're running containers. I'm sure it's a little bit of, it's also about people. (laughs) 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 And making sure you understand the security and the priority of that security in the system too. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, CNCF and its its role? Yeah, so I, the CNCF, for anyone who doesn't already know this, it stands for Cloud Native Computing Foundation, and it's the organization that owns Kubernetes and various other projects, Prometheus, gRPC, FluentD, dozens of other projects. And the idea is that really it's a neutral ground where all these different organizations who are interested in cloud native can get together and um, collaborate in a, a place where all these different organizations can come together and collaborate on these projects that we're now really very reliant on. Um, but it is fantastic in that, you know, you genuinely see projects from all the kind of, you know, major cloud providers, vendors, they all have these interests in these projects. And the only way to kind of make it, um, let's say, safe for everyone to participate as an organization is to have it held by a neutral organization. CNCF is part of the Linux Foundation. So it's very much along the same model as Linux that the foundation owns the intellectual property, facilitates um, 
the ability to collaborate on projects. It also organizes things like KubeCon Cloud NativeCon. So there's a kind of giant marketing side to what the CNCF does and awareness raising of what's happening in cloud native. But it's also about enabling people to collaborate on these different projects so um, so that people can come together and figure out how they're going to make Kubernetes, let's say, more secure, for example. Interested groups of people can come together, set up a, a working group or a SIG or, or, or whatever is the appropriate group and work on or a project and work on it together collaboratively. I know you've been involved with them for a long time. What's what's your what's your current role? So right now I am chair of the technical oversight committee, and that is the body that uh, essentially decides which projects can be part of the CNCF and what uh, level of maturity they're at. So projects might come in at a sandbox stage because they're very experimental, or they might uh, we have a, a large body of projects in incubation where they're on a pretty good path we like to talk about the kind of um you know the maturity cycle where you know maybe sandbox projects are for early adopters and uh you know by the time you get to graduated projects we're really saying that's kind of early majority you know ready for mass adoption what about some of the uh the recent you know noise in the space around google maybe being upset about giving away kubernetes yeah, there's been some 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 uh, angst about Istio and potentially Knative not getting adopted, and I think they just recently came out and said they will adopt Knative, which is good, but still haven't provided a timeline. How does that kind of affect the CNCF and your kind of the overall mission of the organization? The difficulties are really around confusion for end users. So, end users will come to the CNCF to learn about cloud native, and you know if they want to learn about, let's say, service mesh, we have uh, the difficult job of explaining, well, we can't tell you, you know, what maturity level Istio is because it's not part of the CNCF. And and that's not necessarily something that end users expect. And, you know, we can't make any, one of the the things that we do with these different maturity levels is um, look at you know what level of open governance, what level of contrib- contribution from different organisations there are, and we can only do that for projects that are part of the organisation. So um, it makes things confusing for end users when they come and ask questions if they're not part of the foundation, particularly because quite often even community members are surprised to discover that some of these projects aren't part of the of the CNCF. So that that's really the the reason why it would be lovely if they were all in one place i think people want these projects to be in a foundation so that they know that the project has its own life it has um it it's not tied to the fortunes of any particular company or to the strategy of any particular company but the project can carry on so you know this is one of the great things about kubernetes and why it's been adopted so widely because I mean, Google today contribute tons of of time and energy and and engineering hours into Kubernetes. You know, they have done ever since it was first started and they continue to do so. If tomorrow they were to decide they were going to walk away, Kubernetes still exists. And, you know, it will do so because of the CNCF and and all the other participants. You know, it would clearly be a difficult time if Google turned off the tap tomorrow. But, um, you know, it would be... It it doesn't mean that anyone who's 
relying on Kubernetes. They, they don't need to worry about Google's strategy going forward. And I think that's the reason why a lot of end users would like to see other projects also being part of the foundation. How do you feel the um, the recent change of Dan Cohn to uh, Priyanka Sharma, you know, taking over leadership of CNCF? How do you think that strengthens the organization and really moves it to the next steps of its existence? I've known Priyanka for quite a few years now, and she's been, um, you know, part of the CNCF community for uh, you know for several years, um, and she's been on the governing board. Um, she, you know, she's very familiar with the organization and she's seen it from different roles. So I, I think it's going to be fantastic. I think, you know, because it's someone who's come from the community, I think she'll have the, the trust of the community. She understands things from the vendor's perspective. So I think she'll have the trust of the vendors. I think it's, um, you know, a, a fantastic beginning to the next chapter for the CNCF. She's going to usher in a new era of kind of collaboration and community. CNCF has always been about community and I think she'll sort of refresh that sense of, you know, we are all in this together. You know, we're, we're all going through a heck of a year where lots of people are struggling with many things and one of the nice things about the CNCF has always been its, its diversity and its welcoming nature and I think Priyanka will just build on that and uh you know we'll see it go from strength to strength all right i'm gonna probably you'll probably move this in the order just because i should have asked it earlier but we, we typically ask all of our guests um how they feel about multi-cloud what do you what's your definition of multi-cloud and how do you see multi-cloud in the world today oh um so the fact that you're asking me what my definition of multi-cloud is makes me think oh there's a wrong answer and i might you know. <laughs> yeah there is no real wrong answer i mean there's there's an answer that we we feel is the right answer at the cloud pod but you know we always like to see what people think and kind of what their take on it is and we can talk about it if it's different but uh, we, we find that most people actually share our viewpoint so we'll see <laughs> yeah so i i mean i guess one way of answering that question is, you know, for an end user, multi-cloud is uh, an attempt to avoid vendor lock-in and attempt to give themselves future flexibility, um, which I think in it, there is a, a level at which that's super important because you don't want to tie your fortunes necessarily to one particular platform. Um, at another level, um, you know, I think for a lot of organizations, particularly small organizations, it's just going to be cheaper and easier to take advantage of things that managed services can do for you. And that may mean adopting a particular cloud's provision of those services. I think Lambda would be a really great example. You know, and whichever of the clouds you used, whatever their functions interface is, you're going to be a bit tied to that if that's if you're going to use serverless functions. But it may be a price worth paying to do something quick and easy if you're a particularly a small organization or in need of doing something quick. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the lock-in. Um, yeah, I've, I think I've been publicly stated now by Amazon in a quote somewhere. Uh, you know, because I said I, I feel every technology choice we make is a form of lock-in, right? If you choose Java or you choose .NET, uh, that's a lock-in, right? I've, I've now chosen a camp, and so I don't see the risk of lock-in of choosing something like Lambda. If that's my cloud provider, I, I don't see the risk of choosing Aurora or uh, DynamoDB or, you know, even on Google side, you know, choosing uh, some of their products around BigQuery. Like that, those mm -hmm. are lock in choices I'm making because they bring business productivity and they bring value to the business. 
And a lot of times, you know, you're talking about six to six to months to a year to really to get out of a, a choice like that. Uh, you know, a foundational choice like .NET or Java may take a lot much longer. But <laughs> you know, at least the the high level abstractions we're seeing in the cloud that those aren't that expensive of lock ins in my pick, my take today. But uh, it, it's definitely an interesting challenge that we see out there is that people are really worried about lock in, and I think it's really more about leverage of the vendor than it is about actually concerned about lock in. But we'll see. So what I was kind of asking about the multi-cloud, um, a lot of people see uh, lowest common denominator cloud and Kubernetes as being the engine that drives that. Um, and you know, I have an application that I can take from Azure and I can run it on Google and I can run it on AWS depending on who's giving me the best price this moment. There's that camp of people who are kind of in that side of it. And then there's people who see right cloud, right, right solution, right problem. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. they use the right cloud for that particular use case. And that's kind of where we're seeing the there's a division of people who kind of fall between those two camps. That makes sense. There's definitely features that certain cloud providers, you know, shine at and um, and just familiarity as well. You know, people are very, if you have a group of people in your organization who are already super familiar with one cloud, then that's doing something else will, will, will have a cost. So you, you may want to leverage the skills you have. Why do you think Kubernetes won against other orchestration platforms? Because it, it's in itself, it's an incredibly complex uh, mess of tooling. But and I wouldn't have thought from the outside that it that it would have been um, the success that it was. I think there are lots of different factors coming into it, but I actually genuinely think the CNCF and the neutrality of it was a huge part of it. That end users could look at this technology and say, "But this is what Google are using." But I don't have to buy it from there. And there are all these other companies who are all getting involved. So, you know, basically, whichever organizations you respect, you respect in technology, they were all getting involved. So must be something good about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's nice to see a lot of the government agencies now saying that, you know, hey, if it's not part of a foundation that keeps this stuff open, we're not going to use it in our, in our decision you know, and in our technology stacks. Um, which is really a, a change. You know, I think if you talk about 10, 15 years ago, you know, it was Oracle and SAP and, you know, big vendors all the time. And that was the only way they would buy software. And now we're saying, no, no, if it's, if it's locked down by a single vendor, I'm not interested in it. And that's a, that's a completely different shift in the market that I think CNCF has really brought to the table, which is great. It's fantastic to see this. I just saw in the last couple of weeks, there's uh, the U.S. Department of Defense are opening up some cloud native security requirement documentation you know they're, they're building this documentation in the open and getting feedback from the community and you know the community is absolutely full of experts so they will get a really you know rounded solution i think by by opening up like that so yeah it's it's fantastic and i think particularly for kind of government organizations the fact that um you know, people can see what their publicly funded organizations are doing and what their government uh, organizations are doing is terrific. We had a whole thing in the UK around the government digital service where they, um, it's quite a few years ago now, but they had this policy of unless there's a really good reason not to, we will publish all of our kind of decision making and all of our kind of technical reviews and, and everything. And it was a real game changer for the way that digital services were implemented in the government. So, uh, yeah, this this move to do things openly, I think, is 
terrific. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Well, uh, if people would like to check out your book uh, and your blog and all of the great content you're putting out on the web, uh, where could they follow you uh, in the interweb? So I am Liz Rice on Twitter. That's probably where I hang out the most and, uh, you know, probably find me. I mean, also Aquasec team uh, on Twitter, Aquasecurity on LinkedIn, Aquasec.com. LizRice.com is my own uh, website. Yeah. And if you want to check out the uh, the information about Starboard, I, I found the blog over on the AquaSec yeah. blog. Oh, uh, I should have mentioned, yeah, the Aqua Security GitHub repo. So, or repos. So, yeah, we have a whole collection. I actually, yeah, well, we have um, a significant number of projects up there now. Some of them are private, but uh, yeah, we've got uh, got quite a few projects in the works on on the GitHub repo. Some of them come out of our sort of integrations, as well as. Uh, projects that come directly out of my team but so yeah there's lots going on that's great yeah our, uh, my day job we uh, we chose aqua many years ago and we've been very happy with that solution uh, so it's been, so been fantastic excellent yes. thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> well thank you for coming to the show we uh, we'd love talking with you and you know, thanks for your insights on container security and the cncf and all that it's really great the listeners will love it and uh, thanks for coming on thank you very much for having me it's been a pleasure <laughs> thanks Visit thecloudpod.net to subscribe to the show, join our Slack channel, or sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can also find information on reaching our audience through a CloudPod sponsorship opportunity. A big thank you to today's guest, and thank you for listening.